Once upon a time, there was a little boy who hated pizza. I did a 45-minute set for an imaginary audience. I think they loved it. It would be a good thing if you would learn to drive. We love stories! It's time for the Apple Seed, filled with stories for you and your family. I'm Sam Payne, happy to be bringing you all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers here on the show. And today, do you remember learning how to drive? Or maybe you're still looking forward to the day when you'll learn how to drive. And in a story today, you're going to hear from Donald Davis about how his mother learned to drive. It's an extraordinary adventure in driving. Even though she endures the thrills and frights of mastering the road, nothing prepares her for the final shock she receives at the DMV after she passes her driver's test. You'll hear the story in just a moment. We'll also enjoy stories by Sid Lieberman, Nora Dooley, and Diane Ferlat. And we're going to begin with a story about storytelling from Sid Lieberman. You know, we hear so many great stories from great storytellers here on the show. This story is about storytelling. It's about the career of a storyteller. Sid Lieberman shares some of his adventures. It's from a collection called Streets and Alleys, and the tale is called Zen and the Art of Storytelling. We'll begin here today on The Appleseed. I remember saying to Mr. Hansen on the phone, I don't think storytelling's right for this event. I just think this is a mistake. But he said, no, no, it's perfect. Family entertainment for a family event. Now, my father was a used car salesman. So I know when somebody's trying to sell me. And also, after 11 years in the business, I knew that a company picnic was a recipe for disaster. I said to him, listen, you know, Mr. Hanson, storytelling's quiet. You know, a picnic, are you even going to have a performance tent? He said, of course, and I like that quiet business. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to guarantee that tent is set up way in the corner of the field. Nothing will be around it. And anyways, how wild can we be? We're a bank. Well, he agreed to everything. He agreed to the sound, to the lighting, when I would go on, the kind of show I was going to do. And against my better judgment, I agreed to do the show. Now, when I first began storytelling, I didn't have sense enough to even worry about who I was telling to, where I was telling. I took a week-long course in storytelling in Door County in Wisconsin. And when I came back, I marched into the north branch of the Evanson Library because I had both of those librarians' kids in my classes over the years. I walked in and I said, Virginia, not only am I a teacher, I'm also a professional storyteller now. I want to tell at the auditorium downtown. She said, one minute. She got on the phone. She called the head of the library. She said, BJ, I got a magnificent storyteller here. If we don't send him up right now, we're going to lose him. Perfect act of faith. She never heard me tell one line of a story. That was my first job here in Evanston. About 100 people in the crowd, 90 friends. And I was so scared, I thought not only would I forget the stories, I'd forget which stories I was going to tell. I had Adrian sitting in the front row with a signboard and the titles of the stories written on it. God, those first years, I took any job. I did anything. I told Beowulf to 300 junior high kids in a school cafeteria, standing in front of a Coke machine. I told it birthday parties amid ripped up present wrappings and crying kids. I told it campfires competing with smoke and s'mores. 
I did countless Tuesday night sisterhood meetings. At 10.30 at night, after the minutes and the motions, along with the sponge cake and coffee, they served me. I had some strange jobs those early years. Once I was invited to a senior citizen's home, the problem was the person who hired me didn't tell them I was coming. And so when I got there, they greeted me strangely. The receptionist said, well, one minute. An administrator came up. She said, well, you wait over there. We'll see what we can do. As if this were all my idea. She came in about 10 minutes later with four people, three on walkers and one in a wheelchair, yelling, is this the lecturer? She said, here they are, as if I had ordered them from a menu. Well, I thought better not do a long introduction here. I'd launch into what I thought was a very dramatic folk story. About three minutes into it, all four fell asleep. It was a Zen moment. I mean, what if a storyteller tells a story and no one hears it? Has it been told? I didn't know what to do. Should I wake them up to hear the rest of the story? Should I just tell it and have them sleep? They look so peaceful. I thought maybe I've done my job. I just tiptoed out. Perhaps the strangest show in those early years was the Hollywood Bar Mitzvah. At least that's what the fellow called it, who called me from L.A. to hire me to come out and do my, quote, act for his son's bar mitzvah. I said, what kind of stories would you like? He said, stories appropriate for a bar mitzvah and wear a tux. <laughs> the invitation came in a plastic champagne bottle with confetti. Now, a boy read from the Torah that morning, which meant he became an adult in the Jewish community. And you would expect a celebration, but who could expect a Hollywood bar mitzvah? That night, when the people came to the hotel for the celebration, they were met by attendants who opened their car's doors and led them down a red carpet as if they were celebrities. He had hired people to line the walk and ooh and ah. He had three photographers taking photos. When the bar mitzvah boy came, the crowd mobbed him, asking for autographs as if he were a rock singer. My act was sandwiched between a 20-piece band and a magician. The 20-piece band was right out of the 1940s. They were wearing powder blue tuxes. They had a torch singer in a strapless evening gown, a fellow leading who looked like Lawrence Welk. The magician used big cards because he was afraid the crowd wouldn't be able to see the magic tricks. He didn't have worried because they were televising it all <laughs> and broadcasting on big screen television sets set around the hall. When I got up to do my act... Standing there in a tux and a handheld mic, I felt more like Tony Bennett than a storyteller. <laughs> the bar mitzvah boy's parents were wandering around, table hopping, waiters were moving up and back, people were talking. The kids were nowhere to be found. They were off in the arcade playing video games, and I know it was the arcade because a neon sign kept flashing arcade at me. <laughs> well, Jewish storytelling seemed a little bit superfluous at that event. As the years went by, the venues got better. The jobs got better. I played the World Theater in Minneapolis, the Barber Theater here in Evanston. I did a convention in Miami. They picked me up in a limo. I played with all the buttons. I wanted to roll the window down and yell, I'm not going to the prom. I'm an artist. They put me up at the Fontainebleau Hotel in a suite, four rooms on the top floor. One whole room was a wet bar. We even had a director in a rehearsal. The director said to me, of course you want a roving spot. I figured, sure, why not? I'll walk a lot. 
it made the job easier to do. It made it a little harder to combine it with my day job, teaching. I began to feel like Superman. Clark Kent during the week and Superman on weekends. One Monday, I came back after a really wonderful festival to meet five sleepy classes. I got so aggravated in the middle of the day, I said, you know what? People paid to hear me talk all weekend. And one kid looked up and earnestly asked, why? By the time I got to the picnic, I convinced myself everything was going to be okay. The guy agreed to everything I had said. It was a bank, you know, conservative. The tent was going to be way off on the side. And then I got there, and I tell you, I entered the grove, and I realized the picnic could have been brought to you by the people that had created the Hollywood bar mitzvah. (laughs) On my left, mountains of potato salads, hamburgers, hot dogs, a sign tacked to the tree, handwritten saying, Grub. On my right, a calliope whining off-key circus melodies. And that was to accompany the horses and the camels and the elephants that were giving kids rides around the grounds. The grounds were awash with jugglers and mimes. There were tents everywhere, a fortune-telling tent, a face-painting tent, a haunted house tent, an eating tent, a zoo tent. Out in front of the zoo tent, a very bored-looking woman stood with a snake wrapped around her neck. I was standing there surveying the scene when Hanson arrived, smiling at me as if I'd come for a bank loan. He said, so what do you think? Pointing at what looked to me like Walt Disney done by Ken Russell. I tried to be polite. I said, it looks like they're enjoying themselves. He said, follow me. I'll take you to the performance tent. And he headed to a tent directly in the center of the picnic. I said, Mr. Hanson, I thought you said the tent was going to be off in the corner. He said, well, we had a little problem. You see, the haunted house tent didn't come, and so we're using the performance tent for the haunted house. We're using the eating tent for the performance tent. It's going to be an eating performance tent. But it's perfect. Don't worry. Now, when we got in there, an accordion quintet was just finishing. He said, try out the stage. You'll see. You'll like it. You'll like it. I was clomping around up on the stage. There were maybe 100 seats in front of this small stage in the back picnic tables for people who didn't want to eat outside. He said, we have one problem. The problem is you're not on the schedule. So no one knows you're going to do the show. He said, I'll tell you what, though. I sent for a bullhorn. And when it comes, I'm going to walk around the grounds and tell them that you're going to be on at 1 o'clock. If the bullhorn doesn't come, what I'm going to do is I'll stop all the events and we'll usher everybody in here. (laughs) Just what I need, right? Kids glazed with excitement and sugar taken off camels and elephants to come in to hear some stories. I said, I don't think that's a great idea, Mr. Hansen. He said, well, I hope the bullhorn gets here. At one o'clock, the bullhorn hadn't arrived. And so Hansen and I stood at the edge of the stage, eyeing a hundred empty seats. He looked at his watch. He said, I think you should go on anyways. And before I had a chance to say anything, he bounded up on the stage and gave me a lavish introduction. He began to applaud, and he waved me up on the stage. I didn't know what to do. I walked up. I turned my back to the empty chairs. I said, Mr. Hansen, there's no one out there. Nobody's listening. He just ignored me. He said, and now Sid Liebman. And he spun me around. He was oblivious to the fact that he got my name wrong. He applauded all the way off the stage, applauded all the way to the edge of the tent, gave me a thumbs up and left. I turned then towards my imaginary audience. 
I thanked them for their imaginary applause. And then I did my set. I did a 45-minute set for an imaginary audience. I think they loved it. I stopped at all the right spots for laughter. I milked the sad moments for tears. I even engaged in some between-story patter with the audience. Every once in a while, someone in the back would kind of look up and eye me as if, what's going on here? And then he would return to his potato salad. When the show ended, I thanked them for their thunderous standing ovation. I was going to do an encore, but I thought, man, that's probably pushing it. I did blow kisses to them as I left. I was standing at the side of the stage when Hanson arrived about five minutes later. He said, so? Was I right? I said, you were right. They loved it. It was perfect entertainment, family entertainment for a family event. He said, I tell you what, I'll hire you for next year. Let me pay you, he said. He pulled out his checkbook. He said, "Uh, so how do you spell Liebman? I said, with humility, Mr. Hansen. With a lot of humility. the art of storytelling told by Sid Lieberman here on the Appleseed. There's a lot coming up. Stick around. You're going to hear a story from Donald Davis about how his mother learned to drive. That's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Apple Seed. Before the break, you heard a story from Sid Lieberman, a story about some of his adventures in storytelling, a story called Zen and the Art of Storytelling. Up next, here's a story from the great storyteller Donald Davis. It's called Mama Learns to Drive. Donald Davis's mother didn't even get into a car until she was an adult. And finally, at age 25, it looks like it's time to learn to drive. But of course, when she does learn to drive, it becomes a family adventure that eventually turns into a source of inspiration for Donald. But we'll let him take it from here. Donald Davis with a story called Mama Learns to Drive here on the Appleseed. Mama Learns to Drive My mother, Lucille Walker, later to be Davis, grew up on a little farm in the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina. Her father, Grady, and her mother, Zephie, farmed with mules and horses and oxen. My grandfather never learned to drive until he was 65 years old. After that, he drove 30 more years, and he died when he was 95 getting into his truck to go bowling at the bowling alley. After my grandfather died, my mother and I were one day walking across the farm where she had grown up, and all of a sudden I started thinking about something. My mother had grown up on that farm, 16 miles from town, with mules, oxen, and horses, and nothing but dirt roads. And all of a sudden I said to my mother, I said, Mama, How did you and your family get to town when you were a little girl? 
All of a sudden, she got a funny look on her face, and she thought, and then she said, You know, I think we went to town for the first time when I was about eight years old. She said, One morning we got up, and Daddy decided we needed to go to town. So I hitched up the horses to the wagon. Mama fixed some food. We all got up in the wagon, and we went to town. I said, what did you do when you got to town? I thought they must have had a wonderful time. She said, well, Daddy pulled up at the, at the courthouse. We stood up. We all looked around, and then we sat down, and we went back home. We didn't have any business in town. She told me they went to town for the second time when she was about 13 years old. Well, my mother graduated from high school at age 16 in 1933. And at the end of that summer, her father loaded her trunk into that same wagon, took her into town to the train station, and loaded her on the train where she traveled 27 miles to Asheville Teachers College to work her way through and become a school teacher. There were seven girls in that family, and one at a time, beginning with my mother who was the oldest, each one of them went away to teacher's college right through the Depression. They became school teachers, and my grandfather was always proud of that. After my mother's death, one of the things she left us was the rule book from the teacher's college. The rule book confirmed what she had told me years before. The rules said, you're not allowed to ride in a car unless you're riding with your father or your older brother. She had no older brother, and it would be years before her father ever owned a vehicle of any kind. So my mother always told me that she graduated from college and she had still never ridden in a car. She came back home, moved back into the house with her parents and her younger brothers and sisters, and got a job teaching school at the same school she had attended. She would walk down to school every morning, about a mile and a half walk from home, teach school all day, walk back home in the afternoon. She was a walker in more than just name. She taught for several years, and then the Second World War came along. When the war came along, my father was 41 years old. He tried to volunteer to be in the Army. All they told him was that he was too old, and besides that, even if he hadn't been too old, he had a crippled leg. But my dad had spent his early years camping and hiking and hunting and being a scoutmaster. And so for his community wartime service, my dad was trained and taught Red Cross first aid classes. Part of that job was to travel around to all the schools in rural areas and teach first aid classes to the teachers and to any parents who wanted to come at night so that if the war came close to home, we would know how to take care of one another. Finally, time came for my dad to teach the class at Fines Creek School, the school where my mother taught. I'm not sure whether it happened on the night of the first class 
or whether it took more time than that. But one night, my daddy offered my mother a ride home after class. My mother got in his 36 Plymouth, and I think they just kept going. She fell in love with her first car, and luckily for me, it happened to belong to the man who would become my daddy. When my mother and dad ran away and got married, they ran about a mile and a half from Fines Creek to Lower Fines Creek. In a year or two, my brother and I started to come along and make a whole family. And when we were little guys growing up, my mother took a vacation for several years from teaching. She didn't teach school from the time I was born until I got to the second grade and my little brother Joe was in kindergarten. Now that we were old enough to go to school, my mother announced to my daddy one day that she would like to go back to teaching school because, after all, she had worked her way through college and she was ready to do that for the rest of her working life. My dad said, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be a school teacher. It's a fine thing. But he said, you know, Lucille, the world has changed. And if you're going to go back to teaching school now, it would be a good thing if you would learn to drive. So my mother, now 25 years old, never having ridden in a car until she got in my daddy's car in her early 20s, my mother was going to learn to drive. There was nobody to teach her except my dad. There was nothing to do with us, two little boys, ages five and seven, but to let us ride in the back seat of the car and help. And so here we go, in a now 1948 Plymouth, six-cylinder, straight drive with a clutch, headed out for the driving lessons. It was a wonderful thing to watch. Here was my mother. She had a grip on the steering wheel that was so hard that that steering wheel had finger impressions in it when we traded the car two years later. Here was my daddy sitting in the front with a big grin on his face, trying to explain to her with his logic how to work three pedals with two feet, and she couldn't quite get the math to come out right. I was sitting in the back seat watching everything. My little brother was the rest of the show. In those old days with no seat belts, he was not sitting up in the car seat. No, he was down in the floorboard of the back seat on his back, kicking the back of her seat as hard as he could with both feet, with every breath screaming, Don't let her drive. Don't let her drive. She's going to kill us all. She's going to kill us all. If I didn't believe in miracles before that, I would have come to believe in miracles when I thought later about how my mother learned to drive. Somehow she did it through all of that help. Finally, the day came when my mother 
told my dad that she thought she was ready to go take her driver's test. He told her he thought she was ready too. But before she went to take the big test, they needed to do one more thing. He said, we need to go drive through Hazelwood. Hazelwood was a tiny little industrial town right on the edge of Waynesville where we grew up. Hazelwood had a furniture factory by the railroad track. And then Main Street passed through a little business district about two blocks long, passed a few houses for another block or so, and then Main Street started up a long hill to one of the only red lights in Haywood County, a red light where even if it was green, you had to decide whether to turn to the left or to the right. We came down the street, crossed the railroad track, through the businesses, past all the houses. We knew everyone who lived in every one of those houses. Up the hill, and the light was green. My mother turned left and headed toward home, and all of a sudden my dad said, Do it again. We circled around through Hazelwood for the second time, went up the long hill again, and the light was green again. And my mother turned left toward home. And then my dad said, wait a minute, do it again. We circled around through Hazelwood for the third time. And this time as we headed up that long hill, my mother's luck ran out. The traffic light was red. So there we sat at the top of the hill the red traffic light getting ready to turn green. My mother with a death grip on the steering wheel. Both of her legs locked. Her left leg holding the clutch pedal flat against the floorboard. She would have pushed it through the floor if she could have pushed any harder. Her right leg locked with her foot on the brake pedal, mashing absolutely as hard as she could, and her eyes were closed because she was in prayer. She was praying that the second coming would occur before the light turned green and that if somehow Jesus didn't get back in time, that her feet would know what to do. My dad had the biggest grin on his face I had seen all the way through the driving lessons. And for one moment, either captivated by fear or humor, my brother had stopped kicking and screaming. All of a sudden, the light turned green and everything fell apart. My mother's prayer was half answered. One of her feet moved, and the other one stayed where it was. Her left foot stayed flat on the clutch against the floor, holding the Plymouth out of gear forever. Her right foot came off the brake pedal, hit the accelerator, and the accelerator now went to the floor, and the Plymouth running wide open, started rolling backwards down the hill toward the middle of Hazelwood. 
And all of a sudden, my brother Joe started kicking and screaming. She's killing us. She's killing us. She's doing it. It's happening. She's killing us. We're going to die right now. And here we rode faster and faster backwards toward the middle of town. <laughs> You're listening to Mama Learns to Drive, a story told for you by Donald Davis. How will things wind up? Will they, in fact, die right now, as Donald's brother Joe seems to suggest? You're going to find out in just a moment. Stick around for the rest of Mama Learns to Drive, told for you by Donald Davis here on The Apple Seed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Apple Seed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard the beginning of a story called Mama Learns to Drive, a story told for you by Donald Davis about how his mother, who had never even ridden in a car until she was an adult, learns to drive with her husband, Donald's father, in the car, and also Donald and Donald's brother, Joe. They've just run into trouble. Donald's father has made her drive over to the neighboring town and drive through some traffic and encounter traffic lights and navigate what it's like to stop at a red light and then go again when the light changes. But trying to get going at the red light again and having to manage a clutch and a brake and a gas pedal has left the family rolling backward down the hill. That's where we left the Davis family in the car. And here now is the rest of Donald Davis with Mama Learns to Drive here on The Appleseed. Luckily, there was no traffic in Hazelwood. My mother's alignment got off a little bit, and the Plymouth drifted to the left across the middle of the street, across the other side of the street, and we hit the curb, bounced over the curb, and traveled backwards through the brand-new yard of the brand-new house of the Clyde Fisher family. Clyde Fisher was the mayor of Hazelwood. His wife Mary was the secretary at the high school. Their children were all schoolmates of my brother and me. We ended up having pushed two juniper bushes out of the ground, pushed them right up under the porch of the house with the Plymouth resting against the front steps. Inside the house, the Fishers heard something, and they came out on the porch to take a look. Clyde Fisher looked down and saw our car backed half under their front porch, my daddy smiling up out the window. He said, well, Joe, what are you doing out here? My daddy said, well, Clyde, we knew you got moved into the new house, so we thought we'd just come by and see how you were getting along. I do remember that my daddy ended up driving the car home that day. Well, a few days later, my mother decided the day had come, and she got a ride with one of her sisters. She didn't want my daddy being there. And she went uptown to the courthouse and took the test, and she got her driver's license. I remember when she came home, 
holding in her hand, waving proudly, her little blue cardboard, very first 1953 North Carolina driver's license. She was thrilled and she was mad. My daddy said, well, looks like you got it. She said, I did, but you didn't tell me. He said, what? Did they make you parallel park? She said, of course, but I can do that. But you didn't tell me. He said, what? Did they make you start off on a hill? She said, yes, but I can do that. But you didn't tell me. He said, okay. What did I not tell you? She said, you didn't tell me they were going to ask me how much I weighed. And when I told them I didn't know, they pulled out some old scales that didn't half work, and I had to stand on those scales right in the middle of everyone who was there. Oh, was she mad. But my mother now was a driver. I think and I remember the time when my mother got her driver's license on two occasions. Sometimes I remember it when my brother and I are out riding around when I'm visiting back at home. And all of a sudden, without realizing where we've wandered, one of us figures out, we're riding through Hazelwood. And all of a sudden, the person who figures it out first will say, She's killing us! She's killing us! She's killing us! But the other time I remember comes at those times when no matter how old I am, I still have to learn something new whether I want to or not. And at first, I try to give up. I try to say, I'm too old. I can't do it. And then all of a sudden, I remember. If my mother could learn to drive after not riding in a car for nearly the first quarter of a century of her life, if my mother could learn to drive then the way she had to learn so that later on she could drive me to Boy Scouts and drive me to the youth group at church and drive me to band practice and drive me to summer camp and eventually drive me away to college. If my mother could do that, I can learn anything. So I just say, thank you, Mama, and I give it my best try. Mama Learns to Drive by Donald 
Davis. Having learned to drive myself, that story brings back memories for me. Maybe it brings back memories for you, too. And we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark the kind of memories that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling makes for memories that last a lifetime. Up next, here's a story called Simply Guido. It's a story from Nora Dooley from a collection of Italian folk tales. You'll enjoy this tale. Here's Nora Dooley on the Appleseed. Book learning and common sense, or simply Guido. Once, a long time ago in Italy, there were four boys who grew up to be men and stayed friends. They lived in a little town far from the capital city. Three of these men were scholars, and the fourth, well, he was simply Guido. He never studied a thing from a book. He knew how to read the clouds and read the stars, and from the flights of birds to the crawling of the ants to the opening of a flower, there was not much that escaped his notice. Guido knew his world and was always learning. So it was with his friends. They were always studying, and they studied long and hard and were doctors of learning while they were still young. These four men were friends for life, they would always say. They met every evening in the piazza to enjoy a stroll and a chat. One evening, as the four friends were sitting by the fountain, one of the scholars said, You know, I've spent all my life studying, but everything I know, I know just from books. I don't know really if my knowledge works out in the real world. But yes, said another of the scholars, I have felt exactly the same way. I feel that that I need to test my knowledge. I also sense that this town is too small for our intellects. I think we should go out into the real world and try our learning. Clearly, said the third scholar, we should all go to the capital and try our knowledge there. The other scholars agreed, but, but then there was Guido. I use my knowledge every day, he said, and he shrugged. The others laughed at him and smiled, knowing smiles. Simply Guido, they said together, so pure, so uncomplicated. Now, they had always done everything together, all for one and one for all, but suppose, well, they thought now, suppose they were to gain their fortunes by using their knowledge. Suppose they solved a problem for the duke in the capital, and he rewarded them with gold and jewels. Why, they had studied late into the night to prepare themselves for this work, and and Guido, why, he had done nothing of the sort. He had only common sense, and what duke would be impressed with that? Surely there are enough peasant thinkers like Guido even in the capital, they said. Well, they argued up and down and all around how they loved to argue this way, and they quoted literature, poetry, ancient and profound, on the noble subjects of loyalty and friendship, and finally they decided that if Guido wanted to, he should come on their adventure, and they would do as they had always done, share and share alike. So the four friends set out for the palace of the duke in the great city. They had walked along for a day or two when they came across some bones scattered in the road. One of the scholars said, Ah, look at this. I can tell from my studies that these bones are the bones of a huge wolf. 
But how wonderful! One of my many accomplishments is to know how to arrange these bones as they would be in a living wolf. Really, said the second scholar, but that is so amazing, for it happens that from my studies, I know just how to cover these bones with flesh right out to the fur. Oh, indeed, said the third scholar. Why, how curious and delightful, for I shall have the opportunity then to show you the next logical step, for once the animal is formed, I know how to breathe the breath of life into it. Allora, what a fine venue this presents then for a test of our learning. And all the scholars agreed. Guido stood silently and just watched. His eyes were wider than the sky. So the first scholar stepped forward and arranged the bones as they would be in a living wolf. Bravo, 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 said the other two, clapping him on the back. Then he stepped aside, and the second scholar took the bones and covered them with flesh and blood and skin and fur. And then he stepped back to admire his work. Bravo, 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 said the other two. And he bowed as the third scholar stepped forward, about to breathe the breath of life into the animal. But Guido jumped up and said, Scusi, 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 Miss Scusi, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's a wolf. But of course, Guido, said the scholars. Yes, yes, and, and I can see that it is big and strong, and its stomach is quite empty. Now, are, are you going to bring it to life, a big hungry wolf? Don't you want to stop and, and think about it a minute? Oh, said the scholars. Just like our Guido. And they nodded their wise heads together. Now, now, Guido, they said. We are very busy with a very important experiment. Is it just a little over your head? Why, yes, said the second scholar. It it requires our concentration. So if you're bored or confused, Guido, perhaps. Uh, yes, said the third. It's, uh, you know, maybe you'd like to go somewhere else. Exactly, said Guido. I would. Could you wait just a moment? Because if you are going to continue with your experiment, I hope you can wait a minute while I climb this tree. Certainly, said the scholars, and they waited patiently until their friend had climbed into a convenient tree. Then the third scholar went back to the procedure of breathing the breath of life into the animal. And the wolf started to breathe. It opened its eyes, and you could see strength return to its legs. It noticed the three scholars one by one and sprang upon them and ate them up, ripping them to shreds. He ate what pleased him and circling once around the tree that Guido clung to. The wolf loped off. After the wolf left, Guido climbed down and made his way back to town. He had not much to show for his adventure, for he had lost three good friends. He had no new treasures, but he still had his skin, his bones, and the breath of life. And, oh yes, he had his share of common sense. A story about common sense, simply Guido, here on the Apple Seed. Here's a story called The Ant and the Dove. It's Diane Ferlat, and it's an Aesop's fable, one of those stories about animals that teaches us how to be good human beings. The Ant and the Dove is the name of the story. Diane Ferlat on the Apple Seed. There once lived a little ant had the cutest little antenna on her head that you've ever seen. And one day, 
There was the little red ant sitting on her rock, sunning. And above her, in a tree, was a beautiful white dove. The dove in the tree and the ant on her rock. And the animals begin to talk, as animals do. And the little red ant looked up at the dove and she said, Let's be friends, good and true. You helped me and I'll help you. Let's be friends, good and true. You help me and I'll help you. And the white dove looked down at the little red ant and she said, I can't see how a little red ant can help me. I can't see how a little red ant can help me. Oh, you'll see. And one day, as the little red ant was sitting on her rock, a wind came along and blew the little red ant into the water. And the dove looked down and saw the little red ant drowning. The dove plucked the leaf and dropped it into the water, just in time for the little red ant to climb aboard and float to shore. And the little red ant, she crawled across the grass back to her rock. And the little red ant, she looked up at her friend, the white dove, and she said, You're my friend, good and true. You helped me, now I'll help you. You're my friend, good and true. You helped me, and I'll help you. And the white dove, she looked down at that little red ant, and she said, I can't see how a little red ant can help me. I can't see how a little red ant can help me. Oh, you see. Oh, and one day it happened. From out of the woods, there came a hunter with his net in his hand. <laughs> doom, 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 up in that tree. Oh, a beautiful white dove. Oh, what a delight. You will be my dinner tonight. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and the hunter very carefully and very slowly with his net in his hand headed for the tree to get that dove but when the little red ant saw the hunter she said the log ran across the grass under a leaf and up the hunter's pants leg and with all her might she gave him a little bite and the hunter leaped in the air dropped his net and the dove flew away free as a bird should be and the little red ant went under the leaf across the grass over the log and back on her rock And the little ant looked up for her friend the dove who came flying down and landing on a branch. And the dove looked down at the little red ant and she said, "Oh now I see how a little red ant can help me. Now I see How a little red ant can help me Yes now I see How a little red ant can help me Now I see How a little red ant can help me Help me can sometimes be great friends. The Ant and the Dove by Diane Ferlat here on The Appleseed. Let's wrap up with a story that will bring back memories for you. I never felt the way that the boy in this story feels about pizza, but I've been on both the kid's side and the dad's side of the conversation outlined here in this story by Mark Binder called The Little Boy Who Hated Pizza. Happy to wrap up with this tale on the Appleseed. The Little Boy Who Hated Pizza Once upon a time, there was a little boy who hated pizza. His name was Max, and he's my son. Max doesn't like food that has flavor. He doesn't like sauce on his spaghetti. He doesn't like cheese on his cheeseburger. He doesn't like ketchup on his french fries. He doesn't like gravy on his mashed potatoes. And when I make pizza at home, which I do, I have to make him a special pizza. It doesn't have any sauce or any cheese. Some people call that bread. One day, we were at a friend's house for dinner, and they served pizza. It was a delicious pizza. It had pepperoni and and a nice sauce and a good cheese, and everybody was enjoying it. Everybody, that is, except for Max. He didn't have anything on his plate. So I cut him a piece of pizza, about the size of a caterpillar, and I put it on his plate. He looked at it. What's that? It's pizza, I said. 
I know it's pizza, but what's it doing on my plate? Well, it's just resting there on its way to your mouth. I'm not going to eat that. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. 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 Yes, you are. Anybody ever have this conversation at home? No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Max, you're going to eat that piece of pizza or else. Or else what? Or else you're not going to have any dessert. Well, what's for dessert? Chocolate cake and ice cream. Ooh. I don't care. I'm not going to eat it. And you can't make me so there. Ha! Oh, Max, I can make you. No, you can't. Yes, I can't. No, you can't. Yes, I can't. No, I can't. Yes, I can't. Ah! Max, if you don't eat that piece of pizza, you're not going to have any dessert for a really, really long time. How long? Until you're 13 years old. What? He was six at the time. That's seven years without dessert. What? That's right, Max. No dessert until you're 13 years old. You're mean. <laughs> no, Max, I'm not really being mean. This is delicious pizza. Everybody's eating it. Everybody's enjoying it. I don't think it's delicious. I think it's disgusting, and you can't make me eat it. All right, Max. No dessert. No cookies. No cake. No ice cream. No popsicles. No Rice Krispie treats. No jelly beans. No donuts. No fruit roll-ups. He said, fruit roll-ups aren't dessert. I said, read the label. Max, you're not going to have anything sweet until you're 13 years old. He looked like he was going to cry. And then an idea came into his mind. Uh, wait a second. What if, what if, what if I lost TV privileges? Max, you want to lose TV and dessert until you're 13 years old? You'll be the smartest and healthiest kid in your whole school. No, 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 not what I meant. What I meant was instead of losing dessert, what if I lost my TV privileges? You'd eat it then? Yeah. Okay. Max, unless you eat that piece of pizza, you're going to lose all your TV privileges until you're 13 years old. What about dessert? You can have dessert. Okay. And he picked up the piece of pizza and he put it in his mouth. No faces. Now can I have dessert? Well, Max, Max, wait a second. How was it? Um, well, the, the sauce and the cheese and the pepperoni were all disgusting, but the bread part was okay. Now can I have dessert? Okay. And so he had a piece of chocolate cake and a bowl of ice cream on two separate plates. And to this day, he refuses to eat pizza. <laughs>
the little boy who hated pizza. Wrapping us up today on the Appleseed, great to be with you and to share stories from Diane Ferlat and Nora Dooley and Donald Davis and Sid Lieberman. The Hour was written by Alyssa Mingurance. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Our audio engineer, Stuart Foster. I'm Sam Payne. Find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or Google the Appleseed podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day here on the show. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is Sam again. If you're new to the show, we're grateful that you're with us and hope that you and your family enjoyed today's stories. Now, if you like The Appleseed, you'll enjoy some of the other programs produced by BYU Radio. Talking here about The Lisa Show with Lisa Valentine Clark and her co-host Richie T, a show that will brighten your day with all sorts of terrific conversations. You'll love Top of Mind with the Gracie Award-winning host Julie Rose, conversation about topics of the day presented in a way that will make you think and stimulate conversation around your dinner table, and Constant Wonder with Marcus Smith, bringing you every day a reminder to be awestruck by something you never thought about before. There's something for everyone in your home, and they're all available as podcasts from BYU Radio. I'm Sam Payne, and we'll see you next time. ¶¶